This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. For someone building worlds like myself, there's a tension between game and real world that is interesting to explore. The real world um, is fairly boring <laughs> in some ways and not and 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 difficult and there's a lot of friction. Games in particular often feel somewhat frictionless. Buckle up because I sit down with Watt, the maker of Cloud Empress, and we cover a lot of topics. We discuss their history of going to school for movie making and how that impacted how they make games. We talk about their focus and how it drifted from board games to role playing games and have a great discussion on NPCs and how to express their motivations. We get into a great discussion about GMs as players and can a mystery game also be a mystery for the GM? We then spend the second half talking about Cloud Empress. It's a groundbreaking supplement for Mothership. Hold on to your wallet. This is a good one. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Watt. Okay, do you want to search for any traps? Go ahead and roll. Oh, no successes. Uh, yeah, you don't find any traps. Hi, I'm Jeff. And I'm Roman. And I'm Vatslav. And I'm the Nick Westbrook. And we are the cast of Umbral Means in the Dark. An action-packed actual play of John Harper's Blades in the Dark RPG. Check us out on the Third Floor Wars YouTube channel. Don't go now. Wait until after you enjoy this episode of Tabletop Talk. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today I'm talking with Watt of Worlds by Watt. They are a queer tabletop RPG designer and creator. Their game falls where science fiction gender, humor, body horror, and climate justice intersect. Today, we'll learn more about their recent RPG offering, Cloud Empress. It's an expansive Nausicaa-inspired fantasy setting for Mothership, the sci-fi horror game that you know I love. It is live on Kickstarter right now between January 17th and February 9th. So if you're watching this a little bit late, it is going to go to retail. So make sure you check it out. We'll have links to where you can get it in retail below. But after that long intro, welcome to the third floor. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be talking today. So you have to be subjected to the question, I'm sure, in your little press tour here that you've gotten eight million times, which is, you know, how you found tabletop gaming. But the way I like to phrase it is there was a day where you knew nothing about throwing dice and character sheets and, you know, uh, sitting around a table with friends. And then it was put in front of you for the first time. So can we go back there? Sure. My background is more in the tabletop board game, card game space. Oh, okay. Well, let's start there then. When did you first discover those? I'm not probably Pokemon, the Pokemon card game. And and as was probably many people's experience, um, I didn't know how to play it. Many people don't. But I, I was in elementary school when Pokemon, the first games came out and the cards came out. And, and it's been interesting to see that nostalgia revival and the the prices rise around our, our pandemic nostalgia. But um, I started with Pokemon collecting that and then realized, oh, there's this whole other game with with much better artwork, in my opinion, um, called Magic the Gathering, at least at that period. 
Although I, I um, have gone back and looked at some of the Pokemon cards that are claymation and wool, and there's all sorts of neat stuff actually with the Pokemon <laughs> art. So I should, probably shouldn't even said that. But um, got into Magic the Gathering again, not really learning how to play, but just sort of collecting the biggest um, creatures that I could find and <laughs> the coolest artwork, um, which which was really impactful. Uh, did that a while, got into Mage Knight and and different collectibles along the way. Played a lot of board games in particular. So the board game industry at, and my exposure to it was pretty limited, but a yeah. lot of risk. And I think it was Risk 2210 uh, by um, Rob Davio, who has since gone on to, to really do quite a bit in the board game industry. But played board games and then at some point stumbled on uh dungeons and dragon 3.5 nice. and i got the books maybe at a garage sale or at a used bookstore or on ebay i think it was ebay for maybe two dollars each and i had a, a couple of the different books and i i just love looking through them and and exploring the world of dungeons and dragons and they had really evocative what almost seemed like in-world covers yeah, that, that you might pick up inside the world of Dungeons and Dragons. And so I looked through those quite a bit, but there was something missing for me where I, I just couldn't imagine myself playing it. Um, I Why couldn't imagine, I, I could imagine myself playing it, but I couldn't figure out how to get from the book to the table. And right. so it sat on my shelf for quite some time. In uh, college, the magic stuff increased, but also I had some more exposure to role-playing games and and some of my friends had started to play. And so we started a short Pathfinder exploration uh, of the Pathfinder RPG and played that for several sessions. And then it kind of lied dormant for, I don't know, maybe the next 10 or so years Mm. and got into... Uh, designer board games, Euro games, um, uh, Ameritrash or Marathrash games, and became really active in, in this board game community. Actually did a bit of board game design. That was like a real goal of mine uh, to become a board game designer and, and had a board game under contract for several years. And um, the game that I was working on was this sort of expansive legacy style where each session changed the world of the game that you would play to the next and it was sort of it had this large story component to it so it was mm. maybe 40 to 50,000 written words oh. at when I left it so it had this huge storybook and it it was just too much for one person to take on and I I wasn't necessarily getting I didn't have a strong developer with me on the project and yeah. and it was a, a Sometimes your first project, maybe this is true in RPGs as well, but especially in board games, a lot of designers' first projects is their darling, the thing that they the, that they've been thinking about for years, and they 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 bring to it, and it's just such a large project that, um, at least for me, I wasn't able to complete it, and and so I I sort of looked and and got to a place where the contract was ending, and I didn't want to renew it, and I said, well, what did I like about this? What do I think I'm good about this? Um, and I had been watching um, Questing Beast with Ben Milton for a while. Just as an idea generation place, I had also seen Maze of the Blue Medusa by, I believe, um, I think Ken Bauman published it, who was a poet. I did some poetry stuff. And so I was familiar with that and started to get into OSR over the last, um, you know, 10, 15 years, just looking at the ideas of the OSR really interestingly. and how wild and weird they were. But I I realized, oh, I'm really excited about making worlds and creating stories. And that's really what a lot of the players of of the the 
um, in development copies of this game I was working on, they were saying, oh my gosh, I want to know what happens to these characters. I want to, I want to play more in this world. And I realized, oh, um, I can do that much easier than I can do the mechanical side of a board game. And so why don't right. we look at a tabletop role-playing game as, as a space to explore that, that creativity. So let's go back a little bit. You, um, you're playing board games and you're enjoying those and somehow you get the idea. I want to make games and, and I want to try to understand that a little bit better, right? Because there's a lot of people that play board games. Um, mm-hmm. I am one of them. And I definitely get into some of the nuts and bolts of it, right? So there's mechanics that I enjoy. Um, I have had enough exposure to game design to be able to recognize things that are super clever and things like that. But I've never had the desire to make a game. So what's different about you than me? Why Why did you get that itch? I I am a person that that's really interested in making things, I would say. Mm. When I was a kid... My dream was to make a video game. I really wanted to to design video games, but especially at that time period, the gap between what I could do at my house as a child and making a, a computer graphic video game. I was always interested in like 3D and that the Transformers Beast Wars series. So I wanted to make like a Beast Wars video game. And I had friends and we would talk about the video. We'd pick all the characters we were going to put in and... And we never got to the design part, but we would come up with these ideas. And and so that interest actually took me into a path of filmmaking. And so I, oh, I said, wow. well, I can't make a, an interactive uh, game experience. I can make a movie of the idea that I have. And so I started making um, films with my parents' help, even in elementary school. And that developed into some... Uh, work in public access TV in middle school, and then eventually went to film school uh, for my undergraduate and and explored filmmaking, both from a writing uh, lens, as well as the, the technical aspects and the technology of that. So I think I have something in me that that really self-expression through creating things that reflect my perspective or ideas. It's mm. something pretty integral to me. And and something I, I, I've not really had periods. There's always I'm always looking for an avenue to express that. Well, and based on what you're saying, both, the, you know, your first board game design, your move into TTRPGs, uh, making movies. And even when you're discussing it with your friends about the video game, it seems to be a, a desire to tell stories as much as anything. Right. A, 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 am I capturing that? Cause even, even a board, even your board game was, was sounded very story driven or is it a universe or is, or is that one on the same for you? That's interesting. I'm not sure. I think both are, are pretty interesting to me. One of the things I have learned is to really recognize and honor the unique aspects of a media I'm working in. Mm. I don't know if uh, you're familiar, folks listening are familiar with, I think it's called um, Quantum Dream, Quantic Dream. I'm going to look it up real quick, but um, they do a series of video games, Quantic Dream. I'm sorry. So they do a series of video games that are really narrative rich. They did a game called Heavy Rain. Um, They've done a couple other games, but they offer an almost movie-like experience in a video game. And their director, 
or, or head of the company was really vocal around saying this is the future of video games. It's to make video games more like movies is, is sort of how I interpreted it. And I really thought, oh, he's right. And so I'm going to bring that same attitude towards board games. And so a lot of the work I did around this one particular board game was how can I make a board game feel like a movie or feel like a cinematic experience? I think that's certainly interesting. And, and some people can do that successfully. But where I'm at now is that um, each media provides its own affordances, its own unique play experiences. And that's where I want to to focus. And so I went to get back to your question around, is it story? Is it world? Coming into role-playing games, I really did think about the, the game master and the warden as, how am I going to tell this story to mm-hmm. my players? And as maybe other wardens and game masters have learned, emergent play and giving players freedom to express themselves and, and explore a landscape is something I've really grown to cherish and value much more than having a particular story that I can um, impart or a certain message that I want to share with players and really let that be more of an exploration. I think I have wanted to tell stories. I think I have also wanted to, to make worlds. And I remember standing on the playground in the snow and and at the time, pretending I was Thanos, I was really into Thanos <laughs> as a kid. I think I was um, I was bullied a lot as a kid, and so yeah. I think there were some like sick power fantasies about Thanos and all his rings and all his power. And so I would stand on snow piles and imagine being on a, a great ship or being Thanos. And so I think the world was a big piece of of that early exploration and that rich imagination. I think I've had throughout my life. So. It- Something that's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of times when we talk about TTRPGs, you know, we talk about, you know, story driven, we're going to tell a story, you know, it's a story, 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 story. Mm-hmm. But when you're creating for this, you almost, or at least I, I, let me, let me preface this, the, the writing and, and content that I enjoy the most is not when they're forcing me to tell their story. Mm. Um, and it's something that I think that, uh, the mothership developing community has embraced, right? I mean, you go through and look at the third party content or or the stuff that Sean's made even, and it is like, look, this is, this is what's here. This is everything that's happening. Go. Um, as opposed to say like a pathfinder, you know, type, you know, series of modules that are episodic and they're, you know, this is plot point, plot point, plot Mm -hmm. point. Um, so for you, as somebody who wanted to direct, who, you know, ha- had a voice, what is it that makes that work for you? Um, so you because you're to a certain degree, you're giving up the story right to the table. Does that make sense? Sure. It's easy and enticing to want to make, especially nowadays, role playing sessions into a Marvel movie. Right. Where each character gets their big moment and the villain is going to take over the world. And it's the most natural thing in the world to take the things we love and want to replicate them across various forms of media. And I think the other piece, one of the big reasons I did not engage in tabletop role-playing games until really at the start of the pandemic again, was because I had so much anxiety about group facilitation, essentially. (laughs) 
And one of the reasons I was more comfortable coming back was I had done a lot of group facilitation in my professional life and so uh, felt more comfortable to facilitate groups. But there is some level of comfort in having a predetermined path. What if the players do this? What if the players do that? Well, they can't. <laughs> the castle door's locked. They can't. Sorry, your, your sword breaks. You can't do that. And that goes back to that unique affordances. I'm not um, very well versed in the hitch history of um, tabletop role-playing games, but it's interesting this interplay that I've noticed from my small knowledge of uh, tabletop role-playing games, Dungeons & Dragons, and, and others influencing video game development. But then mm -hmm. video game development, I think, influencing um, both uh, role-playing game players and also the game design and i think the player piece is something i've been talking a lot about with some other creators in that players start to lose their imagination for options if they're someone really steeped in the role-playing game um video game space how so that's interesting well i think sometimes players approach situations from a very hero centric framework that is mm -hmm. very popular in role playing games so it's it's not uncommon for two groups of people uh, you have the elves and the humans and they're in a conflict and you know what you're the hero and you come in and and you're going to settle this trade dispute you're going to settle this war and you pick which side wins that is um not unique to any one media but it is um something that can become a cliche and really doesn't in my mind reflect real world conflict. Uh-huh. I think the other piece is how the world might be set up around or for the players. So in many cases video games are really oriented towards the player as the central figure and in some cases the world acting as a museum waiting mm. for the player to engage with. So I think um that can be a space where folks assume that that everything's there for them or they assume <laughs> that each room is going to be a puzzle or a challenge or something really interesting. And I think one of the things I'm trying to do in Cloud Empress is not make everything so interesting. <laughs> um, that's not a great pitch for the game, but... I think I know what you're saying. If everything's special, if everything's a puzzle, if everything's intentional, then in some ways each element loses its shine because yeah. there are different types of play though. I, uh, one of my recent reflections is how much dungeons have some similarities with escape rooms. And that's sort of that other place in an escape room um, from my study of them. And I've never done one. So maybe I should, I'm not the expert there, but a, a lot of stuff in that escape room is specifically intended for you to, to determine what to do with or to solve the puzzle. And, and so um, what kind of boring experiences, what kind of um, real world, I, I, I guess there is a tension between, for someone building worlds like myself, there's a tension between game and real world that is interesting to explore. The real world um, is fairly boring <laughs> in some ways and not, and, and, and difficult and there's a lot of friction games in particular often feel somewhat frictionless interesting maybe that's not entirely true but 
the things that we can do, how we move through the world, certain um, role well, playing games too, right? It, it feels catered, right? Like, yeah, like maybe that's what, a better way to put it. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly where you're headed. You can. Um, one example I've been thinking about with Cloud Empress, I I, I had heard. Um, uh, shut up and sit down a really popular um, board game uh, show and podcast phenomenal everything um, they put out yeah, is great. I, I, it's and they're they're great to watch and there's this um, absurdist humor that's really fantastic but um, Quinn's on that show in an um, RPG episode really advocated for making NPCs like pro wrestlers and his argument was have them immediately tell you what their want is. I'm gonna. I want to go over here and unlock this this chest, or I need to get out of this castle. And and that's the way to best engage with um, his players. At least I'm not sure if that was sort of a. I can't remember if it was just a suggestion for how he plays or or just for new um, game masters. But that does create an environment that feels like a game because yeah. people don't talk like that. People don't immediately tell you what they want. So as a game designer, how do I feel if, and I'm starting to explore this more, if a character does not clearly express their wants or they, they're unwilling to give you their wants, um, maybe entirely or, or maybe they require some level of trust mm-hmm. or some certain conversation triggers. And also for the, the player running the game, um, what if I don't tell them explicitly what that character's wants are? So what if I give the reader of the game some writing that's evocative, that creates questions, that mm. creates feelings, but doesn't spell out, um, I have a character, Ungian. Ungian wants to this. Um, Ungian will do this to get this. Ungian offers this. And that's how I started writing Cloud Empress. And it's really morphed into something that is... I think less, I mean, it's still a game, but less game-like, less uh-huh. um, caricaturish. But that does have its consequences and drawbacks in that certain groups of players might really um, not hit a lot of story points or they might skim off of characters or they might not investigate further. Right. And it certainly takes more work, um, I think, for everyone involved to play a um, more nuanced NPC, which is not always welcome. <laughs> and, and what what stories are you interested in exploring? What questions are you interested in exploring as well? I think that's another. What you know? What moods are you trying to create? I mean, there's not one game experience that people want. Thinking about you know you consuming all these different type of media and, and starting to really work through this question in your mind. That, that we just got done describing. Is there something that you came across that initiated that thought process? Was there something that you read and you went, oh, that's different. And, and, and it started the wheels turning. Yes, that would be for me. Um, the writing of Luke Gearing, who you may be familiar with, who wrote A Pound of Flesh. Yeah. Gradient Descent, but specifically a, a recent book called The Isle that Luke wrote. and. Luke is actually a writing mentor on the Cloud Empress project. So Luke does a quarterly or half a year writing sort of internship program. I mean, it's not an internship, but a writing mentorship program where Luke selects one writer who applies and then works with them on a specific project. And so God, for the last cool. four or five months, 
um, Luke and I have been working on Cloud Empress, and and that's looked at. Um, that's been a combination of looking at existing RPG materials that Luke felt like would ask interesting questions about some of the ideas that I wanted to explore, and then some um, discussion on. We talked about hex crawls, for example. So let's talk about hex crawls, or let's talk about writing NPCs, and so we'll have conversations like that, and then also some suggestive, uh, supportive critique of, of some of the work I'm doing. So that's been a really valuable experience. And, and Luke's, um, so back to the aisle though, the aisle is interesting to me because I started seeing people say, I encourage you as the game master to not read this before you play it. Oh, that's interesting. Read it with your players. And I said, that's really strange. I've never heard anyone say something like that. People saying, um, and this is probably a whole conversation, but people would say, oh my gosh, reading the aisles is as good as reading a novel. So I said, interesting. And so I've read it. Um, I have it on my shelf. Um, and my experience was that reading it felt um, very enjoyable, just as enjoyable <laughs> as I imagine maybe playing it. I, I, maybe I'd have more fun playing it, but why though? Well, the reason I think, and something Luke talks about it, is that um, there's this idea of pre-chewing the reader's food for them. Okay. And one of my biggest inspirations in my own game design is, is Elden Ring, Dark Souls, um, some of the From Software games. One of the things you'll notice about those games is that rich online community surrounding them for a couple of reasons. First, it's the difficulty of, of the actual button entries maybe and the the builds piece but there's also a really rich community around the lore because it does not explain very much very clearly mm -hmm. all of the lore in the world is based on environmental design and item descriptions and then usually a two to three minute lore dump in the beginning there was the age of fire and then or there was the age of darkness and then the age of fire came and lord gwyn battled the dragons and it's really probably three to five sentences stretched over um three to five minutes but what that does is it creates vibrant questions and hints at deeper mysteries I find that the world is a, a pretty um, complex and, and almost unknowable place. I know that that maybe is too big of a generality, but one of the things that I explore in Cloud Empress is, is cicadas. Cicadas are really weird. They're really weird. <laughs> They're really weird. Um, they go underground for anywhere from nine to 13 years and live in, in a sort of semi-dormant state and then arise in these great numbers and reproduce um scientists aren't exactly sure why they do that they are sort of um i think they're they're quite an old species uh, cicadas l are found across the world so there's just really interesting stuff about cicadas um so that's there is no clear explanation for cicadas <laughs> right um they don't have a single purpose we don't fully understand them and i think that's an idea that some of the best science fiction and fantasy touches on um the impression of mystery mm -hmm. and certainly jj abrams has made a career out of the mystery <laughs> box right <laughs> um <laughs> present a mystery that is really enticing 
and people go nuts for it. They love that stuff. Um, yeah, they fill in the gaps, right? They're engaged by that gap. But most RPGs, at least, well, most, okay. Um, many RPGs are written in such a way that the mystery is only given to the player. So um, you're about to go into a cave and the cave is run by goblins who are worshiping a witch and the witch is turning the goblins into pigs and the pigs turn back into goblins when you can't see them. That'll be in the first sentence of the um, book itself. So all of a sudden, I think as a game master, someone reading this book, the game is not for me anymore in some ways. It is for my players. So now I am going to be the vessel for the mystery and I don't get to have an opinion on it. I get to present the author's opinion or the author's secrets, but I don't have any of my own secrets. I don't get to make any of my own decisions. That's a generalization and an oversimplification, but it's the same with NPCs. This NPC wants to kill this person because they betrayed them. And they betrayed them for this reason. And if they get this gem back, they won't be mad. Okay, well, certainly that helps. Reading something quickly helps me understand it. But one of the other things Luke and I talk about, um, and, and this is more Luke's comment than mine, is that something hard earned is less easily forgotten. Mm. So if I have to do the work of uncovering a mystery or or making my own opinions about a world or deciphering between two competing opinions from a Dark Souls community about the the whether a god's alive or not, um, I remember that. So all this is to say um, Cloud Empress um, is designed to be uh, some level of work for the f- person reading it, but in the way that not replicating a novel um, exactly, but someone like Gene Wolfe or Ursula Le Guin, um, Le Guin, Le Guin, Le Guin, um, they could write things more clearly than they do. Right. Um, at least from a plot and descriptive place. But what they do is they evoke the feelings and a sensory experience that's different than simply experiencing the world. Um, as if looking at a picture or something. There are authors, I think, more like Brandon Sanderson that that do some really great plot work. But Brandon, I think in particular, has said, I don't write like them because their writing is like a stained glass window. I'm trying to make a clear window. Um, so Cloud Empress in some ways and, and some of my more recent writing is, is more um, akin to a stained glass window Interesting. where the reader may not get the clearest answer but I think that they'll have a tonal impression, um, mm-hmm. a thematic impression, an emotional resonance that um, will enable them to make their own decisions around that. And that's scary. Um, but I think the other piece in my own personal word and style that I, I'm going to try to add to the book is really asking the players questions and changing the relationship Um which is not new. Many games have done this, but I tend to ask my players a lot of questions. Does that sound fair? What do you think their response is? Those types of things so that I'm not solely responsible for um, determining everything in the game. And getting into the history of the hobby, um, that's relatively new. Um, and, you know, I, I played back in the old days um, where 
the, you know, DM GM was, was the, was the God, right. Was, was wrote all the code. And, um, you, you were going to come to my table and you were going to experience my story. And, and that was the mm-hmm. expectation and that changed over the last 20 years. Yeah. What, and it's your reflection on that. I mean, do you, I'm sure you had probably positive experiences in that older setting or, or is there a lot, any loss you feel around that? Um, this is a real complicated answer. You're ready for this. So there was something very egocentric and enjoyable about the old style. Right. Mm. Um, but there was also a, it also created an incredible hurdle because all responsibilities were Mm. all gravity was around one part of the table. And, you know, it even ties into what you were talking about, um, you know, the, the railroading removal of agencies saying, no, your sword broke. You can't you can't attack them, um, you know. And when I first started stepping across the chasm into um, something else was when I first encountered Blades in the Dark, because mm. something that John does there is he he says, yeah, the, the sun blew up. That's it. And there's ghosts. That's it. <laughs> And there's whale blood and whale blood powers these things. That's it. And my first reaction to that, well, well, well why did the sun blow up? Well, well, how, do, how does that power that? Why, why does, why is Leviathan blood? Do, and, and, and I was like, well, well, no, 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 I need more. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And, and then I, then I like took a breath and I said, well, let's find out together. Right. Mm. And then suddenly bringing games like Blades in the Dark, and there's many other games to your point that are like this now. It allowed me to experience the world with the players and to find the answers to these things, not not point them towards the answers. Let's discover it. Another game where we're doing that right now on the channel is our Forbidden Lands games. I think Free League um, and Eric, especially with the way he designed uh, Forbidden Lands, does a really good job of just going here. Here's your playground. Um, we're going to give you some, give you some, you know, some ideas, um, but they're not really story driven. We're just going to tell you what's happening. And then we're going to drop the agents of chaos, which is you, you and your players into (laughs) this and let's see what the hell happens. And, you know, we're 20, 20 plus sessions into this forbidden lands games lot. And I am discovering things about the world. And that's as, awesome as the person who's running it. And it's very exciting, but it does. It removes a considerable amount of burden. Right. So it's a little bit more of a shared responsibility at the table. You have to have the right table, because to your point, yeah. there are some players that do not want to do that. Right. There's some players that love it when you say, what do you what's the bartender's name? Player, there's players that love that. There's other players that are like, no, nah, that's not why I'm here. This is no, you tell me who the bartender's name is. Right. Um, and there's no right or wrong there. It's just, you know, style of play. Um, and I mean, that's a very superficial version sure. of what we're really talking about. Right. Um, and there is I'm very interested to learn more. And I've got to get him on the show about these conversations you're having, because I am I am a noob to it in that respect. It's something that's new to me in these last two years. And I definitely jam on it i definitely enjoy it but i'm also blessed to have an incredible uh pool of players that play with me um i think that it's very possible my opinion about this would be different if i'd had some bad experiences around it sure um does that answer your question i think so um i i think like you said thinking about the table and the the play group is really important 
I used to play Pathfinder with a group that was um, full of power gamers yeah. and, and it was really an adversarial relationship. It felt like in terms of how easily can you kill the stuff I'm going to throw at you? And how are you going to figure out this class system so that you're going to do way more damage than I anticipated you doing and that kind of thing. Um, and, Oh, you figured out how to get this armor that I don't think you should have. So I'm going to maroon you and you're going to drown if you don't toss the armor off that kind of thing. And that's just, um, as someone that's a bit older now and, and doesn't take as for granted how special it is to be at a table with some other folks that I care about mm. grounding play in, Hey, we're all here to what, why are we all here? I think we're all here because we want to create stories together that are, that have these certain moments and talking about that with the players as sort of a session zero. What do you like in your games? What do you not like? There are, I think mothership in particular has a, as a, subset or or section of it that really is around puzzle solving and and mm -hmm. getting through the warden's puzzles horrible puzzles um cloud empress isn't as puzzle based and challenge based i would say it presents difficult situations um but i think my general framework is how would my character solve this problem yeah and i i see a lot of um mothership players in particular for one reason or another maybe osr players in general that uh, i shouldn't generalize too much of anything <laughs> but um there is something appealing about that escape room of how would i solve this how would i get through this situation what's the smartest way to do it and that's cool and that's really fun um but uh the default for for a lot of cloud Empress games is um well, you're not here, <laughs> right? Your character is. And, and so what does that mean? Wh who are you playing? What experiences are they having? What are they bringing? What are they going to Certainly other, again, other games do this, but that's sort of another sort of take on mothership I'm making is, is really centering it around the characters in the space. So I, I want to call back to something that you mentioned, um, that I want to explore just a little bit more. And then I also want to talk about mothership with you. But first you mentioned um, some anxiety around, um, you know, running a game, right. When you mm -hmm. first, when you first ran up to it, but professionally you were put in a situation and, and, and it sounds like had experience or even training around facilitating. Yes. Um, and I, I'd be curious, what did you learn there that you were then able to bring back to the table? So a completely different world, completely different um, uh, structure. You picked up ideas, thoughts, skills that made you say, you know what? I think I can apply this with a bunch of my friends at the table. And I'd, I'd be really curious, what was it that, that gave you that confidence? What did you learn? The first piece of the confidence that I gained, like any other skill, is practice. Mm -hmm. So having gone through situations that are really bad, um, people really upset with one another, um, I worked in a um, pretty polarized environment at a, a, a large organization and there were um, unionized and non-unionized employees oh. and there was a ton of conflict around that. Yeah. Um, and I was in administration, which felt really uncomfortable <laughs> and, and not totally aligned with my values at all moments. <laughs> um, so it was navigating these situations where um, blame and grievances and all sorts of not the actual grievance process. I wasn't in HR, um, but um, there was just a lot of conflict. Um, and so how do you facilitate conflict? 
some of the tips I picked up or tools were around setting ground rules, mm. which happens in those those session zeros that I think are more popularized. Creating safety tools, I think, is something that is is much more common than even when I started um, reading and playing even two years ago, but started yeah. getting into it maybe five or 10 years ago. It's hard to navigate conflict when we don't have a shared understanding of of why we're here together or what our shared expectations are. And I've had experiences where, well, someone's bringing up this topic that's really, I feel, is inappropriate to this meeting. Well, we didn't talk about what's appropriate to this meeting. So now it's it's me bringing my own opinion in and I'm not... I'm just a person now. I'm not the facility. The, I think the other piece is that the group is responsible for the meeting. Um, mm-hmm. But also the group has elected you as the facilitator <laughs> to be responsible. So there's this kind of back and forth in that groups um, allocate or relinquish control to individuals for the benefit of that group. But that can obviously be subverted by an individual then taking advantage of that or or creating conflict. But the thing that I would do is um, someone brought up something really uncomfortable or harmful in a book discussion. I want to take a pause and let's let's wait on this. And and what does the group think about what just happened? And someone will say, "Oh, well, I don't think we should talk about that here. I don't think we're ready to talk about that." How does other, how do other people feel about that? Okay. Let's make an agreement that we're not going to do that. Yeah. And everyone agree to that. And there might be a little bit of, um, uh, facilitation tone to some of the things I'm saying, but it's really unfair that the game master warden referee is solely responsible for the yeah. conduct of the players, the conflicts between players, the safety of players. That's something that, was a default. I think mm-hmm. you're coming to my game. This is my table uh, for good and bad. Um, and now I think it makes a lot more sense as we all understand that. Well, I shouldn't say we all understand, but I have learned, and I think other people are learning that we all have blind. And I was about to say blind spots, but um, gaps in yeah. our, knowledge and experiences that that can create harm and so harm is constantly happening yeah it's just in what context does the harm happen Mm -hmm. i think as someone in their 30s i've learned that apologies really should be part of friendships even i'll give an example coming out of covid we started um board gaming in person again and I was just so excited. There was just, but there was so much conflict we had because we weren't used to being around each other. And so we were playing the board, the, um, board game Oath, which is heavily <laughs> negotiation based. And I started put, pushing this other player to do this thing. And they just said, let me make my own decision. And I said, wow, I, I'm, I was, we got out of practice. Yeah. And, and we said, why are we having these fights? And we talked about it a little, at least. And and I said, I shouldn't, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And, and I should have let you make your own decision. And here's what I'm going to try to do um, in the future or something like that. And um, 
but that's a really good practice to bring into. Um, and, and I think the other thing is um, psychological safety. It's like thinking about what your table can handle mm-hmm. and what you present. And so as a facilitator, I would really think about what does this group knowing what I know of the members, like what are they emotionally or mentally equipped to handle in terms of the other contexts of the situation, what's going on in their lives. Yeah. In this case, like were there managers there or admi- other administrators there? Like, did I expect those people to start to get in a defensive mode, which would become radioactive to the people who feel like they were harmed and, and all this kind of stuff. But with your table, what can, um, what can uh, the group handle? What types of play could they experience? Sexual content in particular is something mm-hmm. that I feel like most tables I've encountered can't safely engage with, um, at least in a descriptive way. I mean, maybe there's a you know lines and veils. Maybe there's veils that we can create that explore that. But I've, I've generally taken that off the table because I don't feel like um, I have enough time or, or a long enough campaign or group or, or group of people. Um, and to your point, I think it's not why you're there, right? Yeah, but, but for other, other players and other games, that is why they're there. Um, I mean, there is a, a thriving community um, that, that, that engages in these games to explore those exact things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you go back to apocalypse world when, um, yeah. when, you know, Vincent McGay first introduced the sex move. Yeah. And like the reverberations of that are still being felt today. I mean, it, it literally spun a whole new form of gaming <laughs> into orbit. Yeah. And it also caused a considerable number of people to bounce right directly yep. off of it. Um, and others, you know, haven't been able to negotiate it. It's, it's very, very interesting. And uh, I'm going to just reiterate one point that you made, which is well, obviously the session zero is critical, right? Why mm-hmm. are we here? What are our goals? And the other thing that you hinted at that I want to emphasize is the check-ins um, like at the end of every session. And I use a form of uh, something that I picked up from the gauntlet, which was, you know, the stars and wishes, and oh, as, interesting. Yeah. So this, it, you, at the end of every session it, and what, what it is, is um, if you go at the end of the session, go, you know, what did you like? What didn't you like? Um, you're not going it, to. It's hard for people to answer those questions. And I thought the phrasing of stars and wishes or the, the framing yeah, I haven't heard of that stars and wishes is great. So stars, you say, what was your star moment? Either a character moment when you were fully mm. into this, like when you look back at the last two hours, what were the star moments for you? Um, and, you know, it, it gives players the opportunity to compliment each other, which is always great and creates a bond. It gives them uh, freedom to compliment you as, as, as the game runner, which is always nice, but it's incredibly informative, right? Cause what they're really mm-hmm. telling you is what are they digging right now? What, yeah. what do they love? Which is, which is gold. If you're the type of game runner that, that wants to do more of that, right. And wants to facilitate that. But the killer one is the wishes, which is, I don't want to know what your character is wishing for. What are you wishing for as the player? And you start getting answers like, well, I want to find out more about like this witch. Like, it, it, why is she turning goblins in, in, into pigs? Or, you know, we, we came across, um, you know, this this guy at the tavern four days ago who had an arm growing out of his back. And, you know, we didn't get a chance to really never figure, talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> right. We never really talked to them. And, and that and I, and I really kind of wish as a player that we had or that I could understand that more. Or I wish we could um, do a little bit more first person role playing. 
right? Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, you know, more of a meta type discussion, but what I have learned and, you know, the first time you do it with new people, they struggle with it, but they end up, people get into the groove and when it's a regular thing, they know it's coming, which means they start thinking about it before the conversation happens. You're not ambushing them and everything. It ends up being incredibly powerful for the whole table because even though it's initiated by the game runner, you end up in being inf- the players are informing each other too, right? And they're they're praising good behavior that they want to see more from their other players. There's you're able mm. to find wishes that can be fulfilled from player to player as well as GM. So um, it's it's a it's a really interesting idea that the first time I came across it, I was a little dismissive and thought it was me. But now having practiced it and now completely in love with it, I can't imagine not doing it. Yeah, I, I haven't heard of that before, but I'm I'm really eager to try it. And and it's reminding me of just this idea that's been rolling around in my head recently as as a writer, but also as a player and, and human being is just that I don't know if it's like all communication, but authentic communication is really an act of vulnerability. Yeah. That in order to communicate, I must reveal myself and I must open myself to receive information. Um there's certainly like guarded or armored communication that I'm going to come through the situation without you knowing who I am or without um, putting things at risk, but role-playing an improv, which it is, is really fundamentally based on risk. And I think that's, yep. that that's the same with play. And I think the only way that I'm able to take that armor down is when I feel some level of psychological safety. Yeah. And that what you're talking about, I think is, is, I would imagine even knowing as a player that I can, we can talk about stuff like that. I think one of the other challenges I'm having, um, I don't see anyone use the X card. Yeah. So I, I think that's something that um, might happen more in campaign settings, but I think there's a real stigma around using something like an X card. I think it certainly there are with strangers and, and I'm sure it happens, but um how can I get more people to use the X card or, or slow things down um, is something I'm exploring as a award. And I was doing some sessions recently and I was saying, is, am I describing this too gory? Is this mm-hmm. like, let me know to pull back if, if any of these descriptions. So even checking in as stuff's happening, doing a content warning or talking about what might happen ahead of time and then checking in along the way um, is just something I've been exploring because I, I feel like it, it can be pretty embarrassing to, to hit that X on the table or say X or type it in or something like that, that that can be a a barrier for folks. Yeah. I think, um, again, being an old dude, the X card is in safety tools are new to me, um, as they were new to the, to the hobby. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and, and I have noticed exactly what you're saying, which is like, I've never had the X card played, uh, in any of my actual plays. And I have now, I'm now well over 50 different players that have played in very various ways on the channel. We have an X card on the channel. Um, It's a phrase that any player can say that is not that uh, everybody that is, you know, part of the group knows what that phrase is. But Mm. if you're watching, you would never know. Right. Because that was critical. I didn't want people to think even more. Yeah, correct. Right. But it's still, you know, you still have that anxiety of doing it to, to just the five people that, that, mm-hmm. that you're playing with. Right. And, and that is a, that is a real thing. And, um, I was concerned that after, you know, three years of doing this, I've yet to have that phrase mentioned. 
um, on my channel. I'm like, mm, that's am I doing it wrong? Is it too hard to it? And I talked to some of the regular players that I've had. And one insight that I thought was interesting is, is you know, like, Craig, I've never needed to because mm-hmm. of the level of communication we have. You don't you are very good at facilitating a table that that doesn't want to push things in those directions because we know what those things are, right? It like it truly is break a break glass thing, which is I didn't know your dog died yesterday. And now I'm talking about, you know, a dog dying Mm -hmm. in in gameplay. I realized that that's kind of for me, what the X card really is, Um, you know, versus a edgelord. I want to push the barriers and push you to, to say stop. Right. Um, so that's one, one thing I'll throw at you is you start working through it. And there's, I, I still use it in particular because I do think like you're saying, there's a real psychological benefit to knowing that I can stop things. Yeah. And, and what, and knowing what will happen if I ask for that. So I think you're right. I mean, it, in some ways it's a sign of success if you're not using it, but it's something I, I just, yeah, recently been thinking about, but I, I, yeah, I, it, that's great that you, yeah, really interesting to hear your experiences on that. Yeah. And the second piece of that's real critical um, in my mind, which is you have to be very explicit about what happens after it's invoked, because mm-hmm. if you don't do that, then people like what happened? Okay. I know why I would hit the play the X card or hit or touch the X, but then what happens? And if you're not very explicit about what happens afterwards, then that creates a new barrier, right? So Back to the phrase on the channel. If someone says this phrase, I say, okay, this is if someone says this, this is what we're going to do. That person's going to step away. We are stopping play. I will facilitate us in a very natural way, rewinding. We'll go back. It'll be, it, we'll know what happened. We may not know exactly what happened, but we'll have a strong sense of what to avoid. And we're going to move forward again and we're going to dodge that and we're going to move off of that. And then when they get back, we're going to be ready to go. And so now this is why you would do it. If you do it, this is what happens. I think that that's important. And I, and, and I don't hear that talked about enough, um, which mm-hmm. is, you know, being explicit about that. But um, so. <laughs> Uh, for those of you listening, you know, in the uh, the pre-recording, one of the conversations I always have with my guests is, you know, how right turns on this podcast tend to be the best stuff. This is a great example. <laughs> At no point did Watt and I go, let's really get into like all this stuff. But but this is what I love doing on the podcast. So Watt, I appreciate you being patient with it. Let's get back over a little. I want to talk about the first time you came across mothership because mothership is the core of what you ended up making. And it Mm -hmm. sounds like in many ways, it's the core of a lot of the communities that you're a part of, um, including this mentorship. When did you first come across mothership? My first experience with mothership, I think was on the Ludology podcast. They were talking about, it's a board game design podcast um, started by Jeff Engelstein and and since taken over by some other folks. Um, And Jeff, uh, co-created it with somebody else that I'm forgetting the name of. I think Ryan, I'm forgetting the last name, but um, one of the the hosts had talked about mothership and the panic system and and how there was this spiraling um, doom that was happening. And, and from the name mothership, I, I really thought, oh, maybe aliens, astronauts with big helmets, cartoony maybe i'm not exactly sure and and i sort of filed that away um and then probably saw some youtube review somewhere of it and said whoa this artwork is is 
pretty weird. <laughs> um, there's uh, an alien popping out, or a, 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 I think that astronaut's name on the cover is Dave, which um, people talk about Dave a lot. But um, started to to get into that, and it wasn't until I started reading um, Ian Usum's blog, who's the creator of Whole Breach and um, publisher of, I believe, Picket Line Tango and, and, um, great guy. He's been on the show. This really nasty Doom one. Um, I'm trying to think of what a uh, meat grinder. Yeah. Meat grinder. Um, yep. Really some phenomenal work by Ian, who's got this really great, um, sense of, of, of creating some unique stuff. Ian had wrote about this, um, third party mothership discord that that um he had created and i was doing uh troika zine and and some mm. other stuff and really looking for inclusive spaces and, and finding other creators to talk about creating rpgs I, I i'm someone that that likes to be part of communities i would say so i asked ian to join and it is uh, not a totally open community, which is, is a benefit in my mind, yeah. at least um, it's for people creating for mothership. It's, it's, it's supposed to be inclusive. It's not, uh, you know, it's a small group. And, and so this is not to say like, sorry, you can't join. Um, but it's just, if you are someone craving a community of other creators, think about bringing two to three people together that, yeah. that you really trust and you value their opinion. And, and the trust was extended to me and I've extended the trust to the folks in this group. And it's become really foundational to pretty much everything I'm doing right now in the, the tabletop space. The group talks a lot about the business of RPGs. Ian's really open and on Ian's blog, you can see how much he made per hour on, um, I think, um, different books, what the yep. Kickstarter did, the, the fees that Ian paid all these things. So the financial thing, um, and other folks, uh, I know, um, Jamie Stegmeier at Stonemire games did this for the board game industry in particular, and how many people, um, I still look at Jamie's blog for Kickstarter and it's, it, he doesn't kickstart anymore, but I was pulling up some you know contracting resources that are on that blog, um, for some of these art contracts I've been doing, uh, as a reference. And so it was this combination of this business, no nonsense stuff. There was not a lot of posturing and it was folks um, really participating and, and making games. Um, there's, there's quite a few mothership folks on there. Um, so I don't even know if I'll, but just, um, two of the people on the, the cloud empress project, um, Alfred Valley and, and Joel Hines, who have made some really incredible mothership stuff are both on this discord. And, and that's how I got connected with them for, for mm. the cloud empress pamphlets they're writing. So for me, I, one of the things I most look for in an RPG is the community around it. Um, Mothership had a pretty inclusive community. And, and the other piece was the folks at Tuesday Night Games had done a lot to steward the community. Yeah, They have a pretty active hand and a pretty active Discord. Um, they have done some fundraising for different... Um, they did, um, I think, Dissident Whispers. That, that is a pretty political book around raising um, funds for uh, getting people out of jail for protesting. Mm -hmm. So they, they make their intentions pretty clear. And even in the mothership book, there is this um, 
one of the key elements that most interested me in mothership was the um, economic horror uh, that certainly isn't original to mothership, but it's prominent there and and really takes its lineage from Alien in that one of the worst pieces of the world of Alien and of mothership is the economic assess- necessity that I've got to go on the ship with an alien. There is no other option because. <laughs> Um, the, the, comp- the corporation owns my ship, the corporation owns my time traveling, all these other things. So that was really interesting to me. And then the third party license is really great with, um, Tuesday night games. So Tuesday mm. night games will allow you to say your materials are compatible with mothership provided they are in fact compatible with mothership and, um, that your content is not um, uh, exclusionary or, or doesn't um, harm marginalized identities. And they specifically look at that. And that was something that's important to me because I've seen communities explode, implode. And my experience is it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Right. Um, and this, folks don't need to agree with my politics or anything like that. But when you're part of a community, like what are their moderation guidelines? What does this community believe in? What does this community, we go back to those safety tools. What are the yep. safety tools of the community? And we all get to pick different things. I know there's many <laughs> um, discords and places that have like politics, politics section and, you know, and anything goes section and all these <laughs> kind of things. And, and I tend to steer away from those spaces pretty yep. dramatically. Um, but there was just this really healthy community vibe that I got, um, where people were respectful of each other, where inclusive, um, voices were welcome, where, um, you know, me participating as a non-binary career person wasn't the primary way that I was looked at. I mean, I Mm -hmm. certainly talk about that in my work, but it wasn't, well, why are you, you know, my identity hasn't been questioned, um, which isn't the case everywhere. So uh, I, I think the other piece was there's some centralization of the community, something like Troika, which I've published under, is a lot more dispersed. I, I think there are probably groups of Troika folks together. I'm, I'm probably omitting some really big community <laughs> I'm just not aware of, but I'm sure. not aware of a big Troika community in one shared place. May, I, uh, correct, correct me if you know of something like that, but um, certain open licenses into the odds, another example, um, Folks are publishing under there, but I don't see that connective tissue as a community. So uh, for me, that one of the biggest draws was this community, this really special community that the Tuesday Night Games is fostering. The other big piece, right, is that it's doing phenomenally well financially. Yep. So it's got a healthy community and people are able to, you know, it's not for me about making money as much as it is about like not going into debt. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, Art, artists and and creators, diverse creators and editors and and you know myself a little bit for some of the time that I put into my creative hobby and passion. Um, so from that context, I've been thinking, well, what can I do within this context? And that's how I really have been developing my, my games most recently. I do have some projects I've been thinking about. Hey, you know, this doesn't seem like it fit Mothership. Maybe in a couple of years, I'd put something out. That would just be system agnostic or something like that. But a lot of my yeah. work is most, you know, mothership has created a context that's really interesting to me. And so I then think, well, what's missing from that picture? Yeah. Um, what can I create that isn't like other mothership stuff that I think the mothership audience might be interested in? 
And that's where we're headed, guys. So we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to dive into the Cloud Empress world and what exactly is available right now on Kickstarter and how the hell Watt came up with this crazy idea. So the Insider Insight series allows me to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and methods for crafting their creations. We've done that a little bit with Watt. We're going to do a lot more. We'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Writer's Room, where you can find all sorts of adventures, antics, and escapades for the 7th C TTRPG. I'm Zoe Jackson. I'm Evan Ackley. And I am Patrick Keefe. And we're here to tell you the stories of 7th C. If you enjoy actual play podcasts featuring adventure, drama, and swashbuckling heroism using music and dynamic sound effects, then you've come to the right place. Not only do we bring you stories from our 7th C gameplay, we also discuss the mechanics of the game in special episodes called Notes with the Narrator. To learn more, our Linktree link will be in the bio, and that will help you find us on your favorite podcatcher, as well as support us through our many different platforms. Won't you join us? So we hinted at it, um, but let's let's be explicit here. Let's talk about how you describe Cloud Empress. So Cloud Empress is an ecological science fiction campaign setting for the mothership sci-fi horror RPG. It places you in a world ruled by the patterns of giant psychic cicadas. Cloud Empress creates a new Earth thousands of years in the future, inspired by Miyazaki's Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind. Herbert's Dune, and Arakawa's Full Metal Alchemist. Cloud Empress imagines the far future. Find a way to thrive, live, and love in the psychic wreckage of Earth among the junk of ancient people who abandoned it. That is a lot. So before we talk about where it is now, let's rewind. If you were tasked with putting together the Watt Museum, and we were building the Cloud Empress uh, exhibition. What is the first thing we would have to go to? Where do you think the real seed of this started? The seed of it was wanting a magic system in Mothership. Oh. And in combination with thinking about a World War II type aesthetic in, in Mothership, there had been... Not a ton in that vein at the time. What's a World War II aesthetic mean? I would say textiles, muddy textiles, <laughs> bolt action, um, industrial. This technology level, I would say, is, is primarily. But um, uh-huh. some kind of um, Full Metal Alchemist has, has a bit of a, a, I don't know, imperial 
Mm-hmm. Certainly topic and theme to it, but it is sort of tanks and and planes and 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 some context around warfare, those kind of things. Um, that was going to be a pretty big part of of what I was thinking. It was this combination of of I was studying the the Russian Revolution, um, some of the different Russian revolutions on the the Revolutions podcast, and thinking how could I? Set- God, that's a great podcast, and the whole thing that he did on the Russian Revolution was amazing. Oh, that's oh, great! I, I well, I had a newborn in my arms. I was listening to all of those episodes and really thinking, okay, how can I put a magic system into the Russian Revolution into the mothership mm. setting? So that was the start of it. The, the, the magic system for me is I love magic. I mean, magic's so cool. That's uh, the one, I guess, even before that though, uh, I have um, friends queer, particularly queer and trans friends, but other friends as well that want to play role-playing games. And they ask me, I want to play D and D. And I don't have much interest in playing D and D anymore for a couple of reasons. I'm not thrilled by the rule set, whatever um and i also don't like traditional fantasy because of some of the defaults that players assume around traditional Mm. fantasy um and even that there is such a thing as traditional fantasy is kind of goofy because let's imagine a magical world and somehow we've come up with all of these tropes and conventions that need to be in that magical world of anything's possible but players bring those assumptions and tropes with them oftentimes and so um it seems like it's talking at a tavern or starting your own tavern. <laughs> I don't know why everyone wants to start a business in a lot of these games. Um, <laughs> but I wanted a game that would explore adventure in a way that I felt comfortable and would want to run for tables for years to come. And I also have been thinking about, and I'm going to get this wrong, but there are many cultures that have uh, masks and um, and character roles that are present in multiple different plays and, and sort mm-hmm. of stories. So uh, there are, there's a series of Italian masks, I want to say, and I think Japanese as well, that there are these sort of specific roles that keep coming up in, in multiple different settings. And, and you sort of expect this one character to act the same way, even though it might be in a different context. And so I thought about this four person adventuring party. Um, I can think of that pretty dismissively at times and unrealistic, but I started to think about it more as a sort of time honored tradition and a mask that players could wear. And that these four character classes um, or five or whatever, the character classes were in them of themselves, a type of mask that we wear and, and a type of performance that we do. And, and so thinking about it more honestly and generously Maybe not more honestly, but more generously, at least from um, some of the the challenges I have with the adventure genre itself. Continuing to work in that vein, um, I have a number of projects on my mind at any given time. I mean, I have some post-it notes over here, things I think about. But as I mentioned earlier, the the context of the community and, and where the industry is at, if there is such a thing as a single industry, but where what are other people publishing? What is the financial aspects of of publishing right now? And then um, where am I at and and what resources can I bring to that? With Cloud Empress, um, the other spark that that ignited it, um, I finished my last Kickstarter, Hot Stuff on Shoreleave, which is a single player Shoreleave module for Mothership um, that takes place on a vacation island. It's pretty weird. But I had finished 
or gotten close to finishing fulfillment on that. And I started seeing this artwork by this group called Katapulka. Um, at the same time, um, the war in Ukraine started. Um, I'm, I'm probably getting some of the timelines wrong there, but um, while I had been thinking about this idea that was heavily centered in the Russian revolution, at least <laughs> thematically, the war in Ukraine was, was um, starting, or, or I should say, you know, the unlawful invasion of Ukraine by, by Russian forces. And so it felt less appropriate to, to focus my thematic elements on that. And so I started seeing this artwork that had this, this, um, what Nausicaa inspiration and Nausicaa is mm-hmm. a big draw for me as well. And so I started to think about, um, moving the, the setting. It was always meant to be in the future somewhere with these same thematic elements, but maybe moving it even further into the future and incorporating more of the ecological messages I wanted to have into the setting. Um, and that's where the cicadas came from. Um, <laughs> now, is that a scenario where, you know, you have, and I'm going to use this, uh, uh, and I'm sure it's not this, uh, I'm more oversimplifying for the sake of discussion. You've got all of these post-it notes in front of you. Is it a situation where you go, the time is right for me to take this one, this one, and this one. And I want to explore these more because I'm always fascinated. You know, creators talk about all the time. I've got all these ideas. I've got all these ideas. And one of the biggest things I keep learning as I'm having these interviews is having ideas. Isn't that special? Everybody's got freaking ideas, right? What's what is special is being able to take those ideas and, and work them and finish them. And that's really the hard part, right? That's where the blood, sweat and tears happens, not coming up with the ideas. So I'm fascinated. Like, how did these elements come together? And you said, this is what I am going to spend time on. And, and I think there's sort of a circle back that I would, I would also add in that ideas don't mean that much. They're not, they're not worth that much in and of themselves, like you were kind of sharing. But if you're going to put blood, sweat and tears into an idea, the question becomes like, it better be a good idea. Yeah. For me, um, I was always sort of amazed and we get different things out of different people get different things out of, out of different things. And, but I would go to these board game design conventions where it's just for people to play test their board games and they would be spending years and tens of thousands of dollars, literally in some cases, like mortgaging their house on a flipping tile game. <laughs> like I'm going to flip these tiles and they look like bees. And when you flip them, they land and you get points. And I, that is not like my primary interest in engaging with games. It's not to create something and um, being around creative people. I've seen how after something comes out and people stop talking about it, it just becomes a thing on your shelf Mm. or I have books under my bed. The making of something and getting it in your hands lasts a pretty short amount of time. And people don't really, sometimes you think, oh, this will be my legacy. My, my family's <laughs> going to care so much about this. And they just put it in a garage sale, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not true always. But um, for me, the games I create, I really want to say something about the world or mm. my beliefs or explore complex and difficult ideas. And so that's sort of the... Uh, First, it's, is there anybody doing something like this? Mm-hmm. And second, is there anything, anyone saying something like this? And third, is there anyone doing something, saying something and, and doing it in the way that I would do it? 
Um, and, and the more unique I can be on each three of those aspects, if they truly are unique aspects, I mean, those are the drives for me to do something. So I, I found an artist that was doing really unique visual work. I found an idea, um, magic and science fantasy and mothership. There are one or two minor examples, but not on the scale that I'm thinking of in terms of creating a setting that, that would be a, a multi-book series. And then third, bringing in an ecological component. There is um, certainly some ecological horror, um, Bloom, um, and some other ones that really think about fungus and plants and stuff. Like, um, But primarily the horror aspect, not necessarily the ecosystem and environmental justice component. Um, and the, the final thing, which I think is a huge gap in the market, when you think of Miyazaki-inspired, or uh, when folks think about the term Miyazaki-inspired, my experience, especially in RPG Kickstarters, is that means cute. Right. It means Totoro. It means um, friendly monsters. It means uh, all sorts of, of stuff that's really family-friendly. And the most impactful work for Miyazaki for me was Princess Mononoke and Nausicaa. Oh Princess Mononoke like wrecked me when I watched it in high school. And I, my dad had warned me, oh, well, this is kind of adult and it's kind of disturbing. And what most wrecked me about that film was the sickness and illness present and particularly um, the folks with leprosy. There was a, yeah. a, a community of folks with leprosy and seeing the debilitating disease part of that that's present in many of Miyazaki's works, this mm -hmm. sort of debilitating long-term chronic illness. And I just hadn't seen that portrayed in any media um, in a way that was humanizing. And also one of the core foundations of Cloud Empress that I've sort of discovered through writing, I, there, not to go too deep into this, but there, well, I guess this is the podcast to do it. People <laughs> think about themselves as an overgeneralization as, as discovery writers or outliners. Okay. Um, well, I, I don't, I haven't heard that distinction or um, maybe like architects and gardeners or something like that. The, Got the, it. Yeah, the idea of Brandon it. Sanderson, who I have mixed feelings on for a couple of different reasons, but um, <laughs> Brandon Sanderson has given a really great gift to the community about these um, talks that he's done on YouTube. And he talks about two different writing styles and one writing style being the outliner. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to outline every step of the story. And then I'm going to execute that outline. Um, and the other type of writer is a discovery writer where the outline doesn't seem to work and I need to write to understand what's going to happen. I believe Brandon Sanderson is an outliner. Um, the I distinction I always hear is Clive Barker versus Stephen King, right? Clive Barker is the outliner. Stephen King okay. is the gardener. Yeah, I, I, I've read a lot of Stephen King. I, I, um, and I, yeah, I certainly understand that. And then, um, I, I, I've read some Clyde Barker, but I don't know anything about his creative process. So, but, um, uh, but me being a discovery writer, I think is, is sort of the piece about it and, and thinking well, about and, and it connects to what we were just talking about though, Wad, right. It, 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 about how I forgot well, what we're talking about. So. Uh, well, it, 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 where the thing, what we're talking about, the style of play, right. Is a discovery yeah. style yeah. of play versus an outline style of play. So for yeah. that to be your style of creating and writing is not a big surprise. It ties to the themes we talked about before the break. And, and thinking about, I often use what I'm creating as a, a form of discovery for the ideas I want to talk about. And, and my, my wife will be like, kind of shocked sometimes at what I'm writing, but it's like, 
this is my place to talk about climate change in a way that, um, and I was talking about, okay, Miyazaki and no easy answers. Um, I, I, I'm trying to create a world that asks questions that maybe are more important than the answers, um, that creates situations where you have in princess Mononoke, a human community and an animal community that are in conflict, both are experiencing devastation and there's no real answer for how that's solved. And I think that's kind of where we are, unfortunately with, you know, our climate crisis and, and the planet is that, um, human beings continue to want to live and human suffering is very real, but we also know that the actions we take are harming the world around us and will harm us. And so mm-hmm. what do we do with that? And that's, um, one of the the most interesting things for me about RPGs and, and creating a setting is that I think there's been a lot of having gone to film school through the 2010s um, or, or, you know, in that time period, um, that was the like walking dead zombie period and everything was a apocalyptic thing. Um, it's funny to see last of us out now again, because that's so of its time period of yeah. um, let's make it a post apocalypse. But one of my biggest critiques now having some time away from that media and having worked on some of that media, at least for other people is most of that is people using the same worldview and the same outlook in a world with less resources or less power. And one thing I'm trying to do in Cloud Empress is imagine what would a different type of cultural society look like and how Mm. would we explore that? Um, It's not a traditional post-apocalypse and it doesn't think about apocalypse as a single moment um, or as a transition because many cultures have experienced apocalypse and we stand, especially in America, on the ashes of those apocalypses. So those folks continue to survive and show their, you know, particularly indigenous Americans or um, native people or first peoples. I mean, the, the resilience of those communities, the, 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 uh, the survival and, and the culture that survives despite the apocalypse that they experience is remarkable and, and so um, should be so honored. And so um, cultures survive apocalypse. Um, it's it's horrible when it happens and it and it's wrong. But um, what does survival look like in a world where uh, disasters are going to be much more common and are more common now than they ever have been? And 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 I promise that I want to talk in a little bit more detail by, about the magic system. So um, <laughs> I'm not I'm not glossing over that. So for the listeners there, they're going Jesus Christ, Craig. He's mentioned the magic system seven times. Why don't you ask him about it? I do want to ask one more thing though, which is you being a discovery style in your creating you coming into this and saying, I want to make some statements. I want to explore some themes, explore some ideas and, and do that through the creation of cloud empress. Has there been anything, if you were to then flash back to the start of this process, now that we're towards the end of this process, what have you discovered? Is there thoughts or positions that you had? before when you were starting cloud empress that the process of cloud empress has now impacted has it changed your thoughts about any of those things like things i've discovered or or ways that the process has changed maybe by some of the the process itself yeah what if what if you were to interview yourself from x x number of months and years ago and that and that watt said yeah well i i think that i think this this and this about that you'd go yeah you, you do now 
But when you get done with this, you're going to think about it differently. Is there anything that's happened in this process of, of your discovery? I would say, um, and we, we talked a little bit about this mentorship opportunity I've been, I've been given with um, Luke Gearing, but I would say the biggest change is um, I've been writing for, I mean, most of my life, um, more seriously for the last 20 years. Um, and that when you hear people say that on podcasts and stuff, sometimes it can be really, I, I've heard people say, I've been playing RPGs for this amount of time, or I've been writing RPGs for the last 20 years. You go, oh my gosh. Um, but that writing has not been through this a singular media it, it, it's it, my experiences. I think every experience we have um, can contribute to creativity that we're trying to, to express in the world or self-expression and, and all those things. But um, I would say that um, I am learning to trust myself a little bit more. And one of the things I started at the project was I have some background in user design, user experience. And as part of that process, you take people's feedback very seriously and then you make corrections based on it to, des to design something that's great. And sometimes I did that with service design or physical spaces. And usually there aren't a lot of wrong answers with that or mm -hmm. um, people point at certain things and, and maybe they don't have the, the reason why they're upset about something, but you can dig into that and, and find it and, and maybe solve it. So when I was starting Cloud Empress, I would, Twitter is full of, of people saying, I love it when you can read the text of a book out loud, um, like hmm. box text, I guess it's called. But I love it when you can read read it out loud to your players and you don't even need to, to say anything. Or more books should have lore in them, <laughs> like in character fiction. Or more books should have this or that. And what I started to do was actually just take pictures of those and save those and, and have a, this sort of rolling list of all these suggestions. And my planned approach was, I'm going to put every single one of these suggestions in here. And then you know what? This Frankenstein is going to be the best game anyone's ever seen. The other thing watching, um, I'll, I'll, I'll say I watch a lot of RPG flip throughs and a lot of times people will go, Hmm, there weren't, there weren't tables on the front cover. Mm, I'm going to dock that some points. Mm, this, this, uh, th this text isn't bolded here. So it's hard to read. And that is their personal opinion on that. But it, some of those things be, can, can become gospel and dogma in terms of, oh, right. well, they didn't bold anything. Oh, they didn't use the front cover. I'm planning on using the front cover because I can't <laughs> um, for, for tables. But um, I really just, as someone newer to the space, felt very uncomfortable breaking any of those those rules but those rules are all very of their time right now and obviously right. you probably know from being in the the hobby and, and i've been reading some traveler stuff what we look at as an rpg now shares a lot of similarities but but the way books were laid out the way that they were thought of the types of experiences they provided um similar but pretty different too yeah. and so i think spending more time with the project um one of the things i wanted to include all of these and I don't think they'll make it in. I, I haven't made a firm decision, but I wanted to include these like personal reflections that I had seen mm. Jay Dragon do in, um, I think, Sleepaway as their Sleepaways, Sleepaway. Um, I had seen 
in some other work or I wanted, I was like, how can I make this really innovative? How can I do something no one else is doing? And I'm going to include these personal essays in the book about my experiences in the Midwest and this kind of stuff. And I haven't seen anyone do that, especially in mothership or the OSR and stuff. And the process has, has made me more comfortable doing things that serve Cloud Empress rather mm. than serve a novelty factor or serve a community. I, that's a risk that I'm taking in that people might be disappointed that things aren't easier to read in the book. Um, at least things won't be bolded. I, I have some underlines <laughs> for accessibility and just looking through things quickly. But I think I've let go of some of this this um, pleasing everyone and really thought about... Um, Hey, these are the like eight people I want to yeah. drill and, and Hey, this is how I, I think I can write and, and it's going to look like this and it, it's going to be, yeah. So those are, those are some of the things I think that, that I probably couldn't, it's like a doing experience that you build that confidence. Right. And, um, and the other pieces is, is just, uh, the rule book will be free for the foreseeable future, even after the release. So I'm just sharing a lot of it with people already so people can make a decision for themselves whether they dig in or not well it, it, it sounds to me and and please correct me it sounds like you're saying you know what I, i'm going to maintain my voice i'm going to keep my voice as opposed to try to create a frankenstein monster that that is you know uh, a collection of you know legoed feedback um and, and i think that's interesting and the whole voice thing is something i've, I've really obsessed about in my 20s writing some poetry and fiction and films and stuff and really thinking how I think the way you put it is, is nice because it's like, what's my voice? Not how is my voice different? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the product design piece can be helpful for that. How do I design a product that's different? But the voice piece, if you're going to, you're essentially inviting two to eight other people in your head then while you're working oh, well, how am I different from Stephen King? And how am I different from Ursula Le Guin? And how am I different from this person? Or how Ian Newsom, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, how am I different from Luke Gearing? Like all this kind yeah. of stuff. I have um, stopped reading Luke's work while I'm in this mentorship <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I don't want to... It's easy to pick up writers, really strong writers. Like Cor right. anytime I read anything by Cormac McCarthy, all of a sudden I'm doing all sorts of weird stuff. <laughs> um, so that's why it pays to read a lot. And, and, yeah. um, and also yeah have have projects be more than like a couple of weeks of writing because otherwise some you might just be picking up this voice and and dropping stuff and coming back to it's really great and i'm having a, an editor on the project which i've never had before so i'm really excited to have an editor that can <laughs> that stuff and say oh you don't sound like yourself in this passage <laughs> where the hell did that come from <laughs> mm. <laughs> all right so uh for those of you that stuck around long enough magic lot <laughs> you you say I want magic and mothership. And is that there is no magic that I've really seen in mothership, or I want to do magic in I've got thoughts on magic and mothership is going to be the way I the way I express those thoughts. Does that make sense? Are you trying to fill a gap or are you using mothership as a way to say I've got thoughts about how we can invoke and use magic at the table. And I'm going to use this as an opportunity to explore that. I think a little bit of A and B. Um, mm -hmm. My favorite thing about um, some of the OSR books is, is their really weird take on magical items. And that to me is the um, 
antidote to some of the play experiences I had with Pathfinder where everything had a rule and things yeah. had to be balanced and the players couldn't have too much power. It was going to wreck my sandcastle. And um, it's not uncommon in some of these indie books to have it. It's a mouth the size of a wheelbarrow that'll eat anything. What? What? Yeah, anything <laughs> put in it, it'll eat. Okay, like that's that's cool. That's fun. Um, that creates humor. That creates all sorts of, of of play experiences. And if you have the right table and you set the foundation for that, it it leads to some really interesting experiences. And and so that that whimsy and the wonder and the there is I'm I don't know if there is such obviously there's not Matt. Well, I don't know. I I don't have a lot of like actual magical experiences in my life. Um, um, and that's not something I've experienced directly. Um, so I've always, I guess that's a combination. The other thing though, that, so I was going to say for magic to be strange and wondrous is, is kind of neat. Um, and that's something that, that shows up in Miyazaki's work is that it's like a fairy tale. It's, it's dreamlike. It doesn't have a, a a total logic to it. Um, but the other thing I like, and, and from a gameplay standpoint, um, Brandon Sanderson is sort of notable. Again, I'm referencing a lot of Brandon Sanderson, but I've learned a lot from his writing series was um, how valuable it can be to have a, a internal logic to any system you're developing, including magic. And that's where the Full Metal Alchemist inspiration really comes in. There are pretty specific rules in that universe to how magic works. Um, and then you know, things can be broken when you can break those rules, but um, you need a piece of chalk to draw out a, a symbol. The symbol has to be on something. You need to learn how to make the symbol. The symbol can only uh, change um, the the atomic or molecules within that str- the system or the the material, but it can't make new stuff and all this all this kind of stuff. So um, I had seen that also in Electric Bastion Land. Um, it has one of the, I think, just great ways of doing um, magic, which is it has these things called oddities, which are typically single-use items that just do something really unbalanced, um, which which someone said, Cloud Empress reminds me a little bit of Morrowind because Morrowind had some of these things where you just leap 80 feet in the air and you're, you're like, this this is breaking the game, but it's it's a lot of fun. And, and um, I just dig that kind of stuff. So uh, the magic is a combination of... I think three things, the first being strangeness and wonder and weirdness. Uh, The second being a system that uh, creates limitations for that in that um, there is a physical resource called chalk, right? Full metal alchemist there, but the chalk is collected from the um, outer shells, the, the moltings of the giant cicadas. So the cicadas have this psychic component to them and the, uh, there's a resource that can be gathered from their shells Again, a la Dune, um, <laughs> you know, pretty on, on the nose with some of my references there, but um, they're cicadas. Um, and that is a sort of Midwest Americana or American thing that that's important to me as well with the cicada piece. But um, so there's a resource there. So people can't be casting these spells like every two minutes. And then the third piece is really interrogating power fantasies, which we've talked mm. about a little bit already. But um, each spell comes with a consequence. So um, if you're going to throw your voice, this is a spell in um, Cloud Empress. If you're going to throw your voice across the room, well, the consequence for that is that you don't have a voice for the next five hours. Your voice has actually left your body and you can no longer talk for five hours. 
there is a one of my favorite spells in animate vegetables. So you can bring up to three vegetables to life that sort of waddle around and do different stuff. They're not fully sentient. They're not fully unse- you know, mindless. Um, but for the next like five weeks or month, you do not, you're not, you won't willingly eat vegetables. Right. So like what would the embodied experience of animating a vegetable be like? And what would the consequence of that be? One of the, the, the games that my friends and I would play in high school is, is thinking about superpowers really, really seriously. And we would think about things like time travel and we would say, you know, that would probably drive the average person into a severe state of mental illness because you could change anything or, or stopping time. Well, you would probably, unless you really control your urge to stop time, have some significant um, mental challenges to yeah. being alive for eight times as long as someone else. I mean, vampire media is, is so is so about that. Um what would this all mean? Um, the other one of my other favorite consequences is if you become quite large, you can grow your size to two to ten times as big, depending on how much of this resource you ingest. That's great, but you need to eat the amount of food that that large body would take. So you will die. Um, you will starve to death if you do not eat like a Paul Bunyan amount of pancakes after you become Interesting. Large. So there's a humor to it, but there's also this body horror element of you've just made your body quite large um, or you're fl- you're flying um you you turn your arms into wings and fly like all of a sudden maybe your arms don't work for a period of time because they're tired yeah there's a humor to that but it also creates some unique gameplay experiences where okay i've cast this spell i can't willingly go through doors now so someone has to carry me through this doorway um because i've uh, messed up uh, my body and mind a little bit. And so the the other piece is really thinking about what is the cost of power. Right. The game investigates that in other areas and, and not just the magician class can use magic. Anybody can use magic if they have the right resources and they, they learn a little um, spell. But what would the consequence be for this amazing power? And, and everything has a consequence in my experience. And that's really to some of the ecological components and narrative pieces that I'm trying to explore. I really dig that. And I, um, I have found myself um, really enjoying because there's a couple games where I've explored this in, uh, and this gets me excited about Cloud Empress. I, I really find it interesting the idea of okay, there's magic in this world, right? And, and and that has implications. And I really like the idea of it is it is very powerful. The consequences are also very powerful, and uh, you have to be judicious. Mm. As a result, um, and the quick example of that, uh, going back to Forbidden Lands and Forbidden Lands, um, you, you, uh, if you have enough resources, you can cast a spell, right? There is no role to be successful. If you cast a spell, you succeed, right? It just happens if you have X, Y, and Z. But depending on how powerful the spell is, there's a chance that you can have a mishap. And if you roll on 2d6, a 6 and a 6 and the mishap, you're dead and you kill everybody else. So that means every single time I cast a spell, I could kill everybody. And I I remember reading that for the first time going, okay, that's interesting. Amazing. Uh, But what's really interesting about it for me, what was watching the magic user in the game and the impact that has on them. Mm. And, and really, especially when the player who's playing that uh, character started 
stopped being the player and started being the character um and the character you know realizing you know being naive and reckless and the, and then the consequences of that, I mean, it is created some really fascinating character and, and I studies. I can imagine some really interesting narrative arcs then, too, in terms oh. of does this character continue to to act this way? And what does the people around them think? Exactly. And watching the other players with their characters watching this journey that's now never written in the book anywhere. Right. Like this isn't like this is what your magic users like. This is something that the player has found in this character. And this character is now going through this incredible arc that was nowhere that was not brought by me and really wasn't even brought by the player. But the mechanics kind of put all the seeds there. So I'm super excited with a similar um, idea of being brought into uh, your world. Um, That's really interesting. I should say mechanically, I think where it's at, some of these rules changes happen weekly, but where it's at now is I've changed the stats slightly for a couple of different reasons, but it's a heart stat. So you, you test under heart. In the typical D100, you roll 2D10 and you, you try to get under your, your stat level. The, the spell, in essence, is a success automatically. But if you fail, you roll on that miscast table that, that's mm-hmm. usually quite a bit of fun in terms of it targets someone else, it fizzles, it increases yeah. the effect by twofold or decreases the effect. So similar kind of system. The other thing that really hooks people and, and took quite a bit of time to write, even though it was just a single line, is... Um, in the class selection or job selection, it says um, there are no old magicians. Oh, it's so good. And so there is this oh, that's on the, so good. From the character sheet on and it's a rule. I mean, people can break what you know, you can break the rule. I'm not sure there, there are no old magicians. And so people go, well, why are there no old magicians? And then you start to find out about the magic system and, and you start to say, oh, OK, well, that's a question we'll have to answer. And, and yeah. And maybe there are old magicians. I don't know. Maybe there aren't. I, that's when we talked about the sun has exploded. There are no old magicians. Okay. Yeah. Like, where are we going with this? <laughs> yeah. If you, um, the one little tidbit I'll give you is if you've not looked at uh, DCC, Dungeon Crawl Classics. I just had um, someone say, why didn't you use DCC for this rule set? So I, I haven't looked at that too much. Yeah. So go I'll go check it out. The, the way they handle magic is really interesting. And, and um, it's not exactly what you're talking about, but there's echoes there. And I think it's mm. one of those things where if you saw what they were doing, I'm not saying you're going to like it or not like it. Um, I think I think it would be interesting to you. Cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, check it out. Check it out. It's um, it's a vi- it, and it's extremely unique. Um, it's and uh, unlike other things in DCC, which are just born of, you know, white box D&D. This is not born of white box. Okay. This is truly, truly different and innovative. And I have never seen anything quite like it. Um, all right. Last question about this. And we're going to get into uh, one more thing. I want to know when do you know you're done? When do you go? Hmm. This is going to the printer. These are great creative questions. The I, I have been thinking about this um, phrase, uh, never finished, only abandoned. Right. There's other variations on that. Mm-hmm. Things are done when one stops working on them. And I don't know if I like that. I want to keep going. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly explore that idea. But um when do you stop working or what makes you stop working that? So I can answer that question. I think, I think I could always work on something more. It's, it's starting to realize the returns are diminishing uh-huh. and it's also starting to think about what are my devoted motivations for, for continuing to work on something. 
Um, so I do believe by definition, I could pick this up. I could pick any of my old games up and start working on them again. There are certain barriers to doing that. Um, the files, you know, do I have the files? Do, do I know what was going on there? Do I want to do it? Um, but I can pick anything up and I can keep working on anything. And, and we talked a little bit. I mean, I had been working on this, this one board game for three to four years and, and got to a place where I had a world I liked, but I, it wasn't a game and I had to put it down <laughs> and I haven't touched it since. I thought about it every once and again. Could I do anything better with it? But that was a um, like a small T trauma to me creatively because um, I had other experiences in theater and things where I did some writing and, and you put, I put I'll, I'll, in high school, um, I put an entire summer into writing this like one person comedy act that I was going to use for a theater thing at school. And I had to like audition to do it. And I spent all summer, I put all this time in it and I didn't get it. They didn't want me to do it. And I was so protective of it. I didn't show it to anyone. And I showed it to a group of people once and they were like, had some real feedback for me that I couldn't hear. And what I, what I said was I wasted my summer and I had this huge Mm. resentment at the, the, the teachers that had, told me um you can't do it or they didn't say you can't do it but they picked other people for this thing right and at my best i realized things need to be worth doing while you're doing them yeah um so if i'm expecting a reward at the end of this uh, life is such that that reward may not happen and it and i may get the reward and it might be different than what i expected Mm. the second piece is i don't want to be working on stuff that people can't see uh, i don't want to work three to four years on a board game that may or may not come out and so i've been really intentional about timelines and i have some project management background in my professional um life and and just saying okay one of the great things about indie tabletop role-playing is we have zine month and zine quest every year so cloud empress is up on zine month zine quest we have game jams every month we have all sorts of things, different releases and stuff. And so I've really used those as game jams as a really good creative outlet where you have a month to make this. Mm -hmm. Um, With Zine Month, um, I think it's probably safest to keep a project in delivered in like six to eight months after it launches on Kickstarter. So that's my time limit. Right. Um, So I really think about the project from a um, timeline project management perspective. Mm Mm-hmm sort of my own producer and and there comes a point where i start cutting like um really quickly or, or i need to cut a lot uh, hot stuff on Shirley. my previous book was like 100 pages and I, I just wasn't able to write it all um i didn't promise that in the kickstarter thankfully so i did that cutting before i put it up as a product which i think is really important and where a lot yeah. of um, crowdfunding goes wrong is when people have the dream they put the dream up which is kickstarter's literal pitch to creatives is fund your dream well i don't think you should fund your dream i think you should fund your product because that's where, that's what people expect they don't expect a dream yeah. they expect a product and they they expect you to be a store yep. and i i love my backers and i love my community um for supporting me but we have a shared understanding that they're going to get a product and yep. they're going to get a product somewhat similar to what i promise and that's fine right um but we need to be clear again. Uh, that's our that's our session zero. Is you're not you're coming here 
at least the way I pitch cloud and on, on Kickstarter is like, you'll know what you get and you can look at it now and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think timeline is really important. I think the other piece, mothership is impactful for me because, and, and RPGs in general is because um, I'll name a video game that maybe some audience of your audience will be familiar. Probably not a lot, but um, I don't know. I shouldn't make that judgment, but um, <laughs> Two of my favorite games of, of the last two years are um, Monster Hunter Rise and Elden Ring. Interesting. Um, neither of them are very story. Well, Elden Ring has its own narrative story. Monster Hunter Rise is really gameplay experience, but both of them are like the eighth or tenth entry in the series. Mm-hmm. And you can look at that really cynically. And I think there are some franchises where that's appropriate to look more cynically at it and say they're just doing the same thing every time. But I think. Um, from a product design place, from a user design place, iteration is really valuable and, and, and designing products in such a way that there is room to iterate and mothership, as I said, this really bothers some people. I think it's funny. Um, mothership is, is going to release its first edition this year, despite being out for since 2015. <laughs> yep. And that was called its zero edition. So my understanding is Sean and the folks at TKG have really been using that, that five years to figure out what the game is and is not refine things and then put something out. That's a little different that that'll be improved. And so I don't know how people will respond to this. I've been sharing it on the Kickstarter, but I'm, I'm planning like an omnibus or slipcover edition in five to 10 years for cloud. Yeah. So, you know, I don't need to get everything right on this edition. I need to do my best. But um, I can only do what I can do, and I want to do it within this time frame. And using the, the time frame, um, and and knowing that there are all, if I want to come back, creating those options for myself. Maybe that's the, right. the best way I can answer that. That's very very cool. All right. So the last thing I always like to talk to guests about, um, and we'll keep it brief because I've already kept you too long, is um, I'm fascinated by what creators consume. Now, we've talked about a lot of the inspirations uh, you have, you know, movies, uh, books and things like that have inspired you. This is more what's what has hooked you recently. So is there any books, movies, music, uh, stuff you've been binge watching, you couldn't put down a video game, something that just got its hooks in you recently? So a couple things. Um, having gone to film school, I am very cynical about movies. <laughs> which I'm sure I will grow. My cynicism of role-playing <laughs> games will grow in time. Maybe that be of that now. Um, I really like Nope, um, yeah. the film. Um, it's, it's uh, I think one thing I, I really look for in media now is, is uniqueness and, and strangeness rather than polish, which maybe is, mm-hmm. is that's the first thing I sort of look for. And, and um, as I've been thinking about success, and Cloud Empress is very successful on Kickstarter right now. It's like, what are the costs of success? So that was really interesting. And 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 the fact that it's sort of self-referential is, is interesting to me. So that mm-hmm. was a really impactful movie um, recently. Uh, Frontier Scum, which is an RPG that, that I've, I've mentioned a couple times. It started as a, a Morkberg hack. I think I'm saying that in the Swedish way. or, or um, I don't know if it's from Sweden. I think it is. Um, <laughs> Mukberg, I think that's Mukberg. Um, the more you sound like the Swedish chef, the closer you get. Um, it's a hack of that in a uh, Western setting. To me, it, a lot of like Red Dead Redemption 2 inspirations. I'm not sure if that's entirely true, but some really 
really good writing and a really great combat system that I've adapted for Cloud Empress. So I they, they use guns in a really unique and dangerous way in the game. And and I think almost in a, um, a way that speaks to like an anti-violent aesthetic in terms of how dangerous they are. Um, so that's a, a game that I've, I've really been interested in. Fantastic graphic design. Um, Western anything does have its complications. I think it does make an intentional effort to distance itself from some of the ideas of the West. And it starts very intentionally, explicitly. The book starts that way. But um, I think a full investigation of that is is probably needed for me. That'll take a lot longer and probably several years. Yeah. Um, the new uh, Wiseblood album, Wiseblood, um, that's pretty cool. Um, that's another example of, I think, Wiseblood, I think it's pronounced. I, some of these stuff I just read, but it's, um, I don't know, like indie rock indie pop kind of music but um they're a group or um that i think really does some pretty fantastic um i would say like political and and ecological music in a way that isn't obnoxious Um, (laughs) or annoying (laughs) i i with Cloud Empress, I mean, one of my intentions is that no easy answers. That means I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm not going right. to say this is go recycle. Um, uh, I think the best political media I consume, thinking of some Radiohead stuff and some other stuff, I mean, it, it evokes a feeling, it evokes an idea. Um, oftentimes, those aren't fully specific. They more speak right. to a time period, a zeitgeist, um, a concept that stuff really resonates with me. So that the new album has a, a song called, I think, Children of the Empire, which maybe the title's a little, you know, gives you some <laughs> idea what it is, but it, it's not like this straight on approach to, I don't like straight on approaches to a lot of um, yeah. topics. And, and so I really try to, you know, um, anybody can read an essay, but it doesn't, I think most of our decisions are actually emotional um, as human beings, which presents some significant fears of mine in terms of how we're going to move forward as a species. But um, I think, <laughs> Artwork at its best connects with our emotional and, and uh, centers and and can create some really unique experiences. So um, those are a couple. I'm rereading Dune for a book club. So um, uh, that's been interesting to dive in. It's not my first reading, but um, that's been kind of fun too, I guess, fiction wise. Very, very cool. Yeah. And, and something I think you hinted at that I just want to hammer out just a little bit is mm-hmm. it's important that, you know, yes, having in this message, right. And Radiohead, I'm a huge Radiohead fan. The music also has to be good too. Right. So if yeah. you're going to, if you're going to have a message in your game, it helps if the game doesn't suck. Right. Uh, if you're going to have a message in your book, it's, it's good. If the book is, is, is a good book, um, the message alone is not enough. And sometimes we can encounter that situation where the message overtakes the, the quality. Um, and the, as a result, the message never comes through because like, well, this is, this is shitty music. <laughs> and, and what messages do we really want need? I mean, right. Um, we're, we get thousands and thousands of messages every day. Um, some of them very benign, some of them, um, deeply troubling, some of them yeah. <laughs> supportive. Um, <laughs> what have we heard before? What haven't we? And, and the other piece is just, watching a little video um, on YouTube or something, it was like, we hear the advice best when it comes from our own voice. Interesting. And, and I, I've done some coaching work around um, not sports, but um, I guess asking thoughtful questions to folks mm-hmm. to, to help them through different situations. And um, the worst thing you can hear is, is someone say, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> 
And you think, oh, wow, if you're giving advice or something, you think that's the best. Oh, they, they, they agree with me. But nine times out of 10, that person is shut off. Right. They say, you're right. It's not I'm right and I agree with you. It's you're right. Like, let, get away from me. It's like, stop. I, I want to stop talking, talking about this right now. I understand yep. what you're saying. Um, so how, if I'm going to create art, it's much more important for me to, to just pose these questions, create space for someone to say, what do I think about cicadas? What do I think <laughs> about um, what humanity will be like in 2000 years? Yeah. Um, if, if we're still here, um, I don't know. Um, what do I think about dreams? What do I think about the afterlife? All these kind of things that are kind of on the sub level of, of Cloud Empress <laughs> and, and just play around with that in a fun way. I mean, I think the other piece right. is people come to role playing games, not everyone, but um, most of the uh, hobby is around fun, um, mm -hmm. wanting a certain type of enjoyable experience. That's where some of the laughter in the game comes from and the humor attempts is because I think humor and fun are really healing um, and really yep. needed right now. So. No, I completely agree. So there's two two types of people listening to us right now, Watt. There is someone who uh, foolishly listens to every episode as soon as it's released, which means that the Kickstarter is out there. Uh, they're going to do what I've already um, committed to doing after this, which is they're going to follow the links as they scroll down and they're going to back this thing. Uh, there's also a group that uh, is catching up. Um, mm -hmm. and the Kickstarter's over and, uh, they're listening to this right now and they're going son of a gun. Like I like, damn it. I gotta, I gotta like, as soon as Craig puts out episodes, I need to listen to them for those people <laughs> that are just catching up now. What, where, where will they likely go to be able to take advantage and, and get their hands on this post Kickstarter? Cloudempress.com is is provided. I'm still paying the domain name. Um, <laughs> it's probably the easiest place to go. Um, right. If you don't find anything there, which you should, um, worldsbywatt.itch.io. Um, that's my itch page, which is just a, a website where you can download my games. Um, the, the rule book is really intended to be free and not just a, all the images cut out version. Um, like the full rule book with some nice pictures and stuff. Um, Karen <laughs> is a great, really inspiration on that. Just like give the rule book away. Um, mothership as well. So folks can grab the rule book and then, um, the idea is to have a, a, you know, planning a retail release. Um, all of the mothership titles are carried by Tuesday night games. Um, but also my past titles have been at exalted funerals, spear, Witch, and, and then some other folks, uh, igloo tree and, and other places, uh, across the, um, the world. Beautiful, beautiful. And again, scroll down right now, guys and gals, you can see all of those uh, links right below. Uh, well, there's a lot of things to do on a Sunday afternoon, uh, except <laughs> wasting a couple hours with me. So I, I want I really, really enjoyed this and I uh, appreciate you making the time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been a great talk. I'm glad. And uh, you listening right now, this is the end. You made it through the whole thing and I appreciate you too. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floor heads You still here? Wow. Um, well, the episode is over.
But if you're bored, why not go to Patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care.